uh, what he used to be able to do. How many like free stuff? Anybody like free stuff? <laughs> this is for the ladies. There are, uh, <laughs> um, I don't know if you've seen these before. They sit at the table, but people don't know what they are. These are our bookmark Bible studies. My wife, um, in the back of her Bible, had all these scriptures that she would use when she would teach a Bible study uh, when people wanted quick answers about baptism, about who Jesus was, about the plan of salvation, about how to receive the Holy Ghost. Somebody said to her, you need to make those available. Could I have a list of those? And over a period of time, they, they turned into this little bookmark Bible study. It's four different uh, neat little laminated bookmarks. One is answers about baptism. One's God planned for man. The other one's receiving God's greatest gift, the Holy Ghost. And the fourth one is who is Jesus? I'll give you an example about how effective they are. I was preaching in Donovan, Missouri, and they were on my table, and a guest came into the service, was a little weary, uh, wary of us, didn't know what to think about us Pentecostals, heard some negative press about us, you know how it is, and she said, I'm going to find out what these people believe, and she grabbed them. She didn't pay for them or anything. She just grabbed them. She put them in her purse, and she went home, and then she read them to herself, opened up the Bible, looked at them. She came back the next night. She said, well, everything that they believe is in the Bible. Well, I believe what's in the Bible. Well, there's nothing crazy about these people. This is, this is what the Bible says. And she got baptized and got the Holy Ghost. So she taught herself a Bible study with these. and They're that easy. They're that simple. You don't even have to know what to do. So if there's a lady up here that wants to win the next time you have the Bible study chart competition, come grab them. Amen. She's going to win next time. <laughs> Since we gave it to the, to the ladies, this one's for the men. Um, this is my latest series, Getting Over Guilt. It's two messages. One is, uh, Neither Do I Condemn You. And the second message is the worthiness factor. This is the worthiness of the Lamb. Probably one of the most profound words that I've ever preached, and I preached it from the book of Revelation. Not often do I preach from that text, but it is basically this premise. Satan began his kingdom in a challenge of God's worthiness to be worshipped. That's the basis of his kingdom. If we can prove that Jesus is worthy, then it becomes the end of the devil's kingdom. And the premise by which He works in your life is by questioning your worthiness. And so when that question is solved, then Satan is no longer a part of your life. And you can receive everything that God has for you. So we can get over guilt. We can leave the past and pursue our future. Who wants this? Run up and get it. Amen. So, God bless you. Well, man, you know, you've got to get right or you get left out. Okay. <laughs> Praise God. If you'll open your Bibles today, we're going to look at the book of Galatians, chapter number 4. Galatians chapter number 4.
And we're also going to read, actually put a finger there, and let's start, let's start in Acts. We're going to look at Acts chapter 6. And the Bible says in verse number 7, well, let's look at Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, everyone say multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. And the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It's not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Verse number 7, and the Word of God increased. Everyone say, the Word of God increased. And the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great, number of, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now we go to the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, and verse number 29, And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and set him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest, everyone say rest, throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Everyone say multiplied. Now let's go to Galatians 4, where you had your finger stuck there. Galatians 4 and verse number uh, 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until, everyone say until, until Christ be formed in you. Amen. Let's lift our hands, let's lift our voice, and let's pray together right now. Father, we thank You for Your Word tonight. We thank You for the power of the Holy Ghost that is here. I pray, God, that You would help us to step into that place, O oh God, of fulfilling Your will in the earth. Let us manifest who You are, O oh God, in this generation, Lord, we pray. I bind every resisting spirit, whether human or demonic, in the name of Jesus. We pray for demonstration, revelation, and impartation in this place. Direct us in every way that your perfect will may be done in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and clap your hands to the Lord and give the Lord a shout of praise. And you may be seated. I'm just going to talk to you about living in the rest of God. Living in the rest of God. Bible says in the book of Acts that as it was begun by the ministry of Jesus, it was the church that was to enter into that ministry of Christ and carry it on. Acts 1 and 1 says, of all that Jesus began. Everyone say began. He began both to do and teach. So it started with Jesus, but He's ministered that to us now. He's given to us 
that ministry of reconciliation and that word of reconciliation. We are to finish the work that Jesus started. That is what the book of Acts is all about. And if we are following the model and the pattern of the book of Acts, then we are to continue in, in that same in that same model in the 21st century. Jesus then gives us a little bit more insight into how this is carried out. In Acts chapter number 1, He said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto Me. I don't know if you understand the word witness here, but the word witness does not just mean to tell your testimony. The word witness here actually means martyr. It means someone that gives their life for the cause of Christ. That willingly lays down their life. And he says, you're going to have power to lay down your life in this world. And in so doing, you are going to break barriers in every direction. If we are going to be an apostolic church, if we're going to be the people that God's called us to be, if we're going to be the manifestation of His body, in the earth today we have to first check out of the world we have to let everything that is in the world be broken off of us we have to pick up our cross and follow Jesus denying ourselves, dying to what is in the world Paul said I am crucified to the world and the world is crucified to me you see Satan's only impact comes from the flesh because the flesh wants what's in the world. Satan, who is the prince of the world, then has some influence in our lives. But Jesus said, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. And so in Acts chapter 1, he said, I'm going to put my power in you, the power of the Holy Ghost, and you are going to be witnesses unto me. You are going to walk in my footsteps. You are going to be dead to the world and the world will have no control over you. It will not be able to manipulate you. It will not be able to stop you. And as a result, it's going to start in Jerusalem. But it won't be contained in Jerusalem. It's going to spread to Judea. But it won't be contained in Judea. It's going to get to Samaria. But it won't be contained in Samaria. It's going to eventually come to a point where it will be in the uttermost parts of the earth. What God put inside of us cannot be contained. It cannot be held up. It cannot be hemmed in. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be manipulated. It is not of this world. Therefore, it is not subject to any of the limitations of this world. It didn't come through the flesh so the flesh can't stop it. It came through the Spirit, fell down from heaven, and it changed the world the moment that it did. And it's still changing lives, changing men, changing cities, changing regions, and breaking down barriers all around the world. Would you clap your hands and thank the Lord for the power of the Holy Ghost? Jesus gave us a paradox. He said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. But if you try to keep your life, you're going to lose it. If you try to hold on to your life in this world, everything you do to try to hold on to it, in the end, it all just slips right through your fingers. So rather than let 
that your life be taken from you. Why don't you take your life and give it to Jesus and then let Him do something with it that nothing and no one else can. And so we see in the book of Acts there was a principle of men and women giving all. The Bible says when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. In verse number 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave them utterance. The church was built on all. Everyone gave all. And the Bible says very plainly that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and of prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continually daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved we many times look at Pentecost as the high water mark for the church but this was the entry level of the church This is where the church began. He said this is where it starts. This is the foundation. And if it began this way, then you can anticipate it's going to get better. The longer that that church exists, then we can anticipate it's going to increase and not diminish. And so I'm telling you the greatest harvest was not on the day of Pentecost. We have yet to see our greatest harvest. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning of a thing. If he started with 3,000 souls on the day of Pentecost, then we can anticipate that there's going to be many times over that kind of outpourings of the Holy Ghost in our times. If you believe that, clap your hands to the Lord and give Him praise. But the Bible tells us that the Lord added to the church that there was an addition that every single day they got into this wave after wave after wave of people receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost and being baptized in the name of Jesus. What they did in the temple, they did in their houses. This is how you know that you're really getting into an apostolic pattern when what happens in here also happens when you get home or in your home fellowship groups that we have the same kind of of outpourings, the same kind of demonstration of the Spirit of God. There's something that clicks in you when it's not just the preacher preaching, or it's not just the choir singing, or it's not just the musicians playing, but when you're sitting there across the Bible with somebody else, and the same Holy Ghost falls right there in the living room or in the kitchen, that's when you know this is real. This is God. And it's unstoppable. But began first with addition. God started with something that they could handle. God only gives you the amount of people that you can take care of. 
And so God added to the church. The structure that was in the beginning was a structure that could accommodate addition. That's the reason why some animals can have more young than others. <laughs> An average bluegill has 250,000 eggs every time that it spawns. Because they're factoring in, they're going to lose, you know, quite a few in the process. <laughs> I don't catch bluegills. That's for people like you that fish with worms, you know. <laughs> he forgets I have the mic. But there's not a whole lot of maintenance that goes on for a bluegill. I mean, once they defend those little fingerlings and they start to wiggle off, then that bluegill says, my job is done, and, you know, hey, I might eat a few myself. <laughs> Human beings generally only have one at a time. If you have twins, it's a lot. Triplets, it makes the paper, okay? Because it's pretty hard for you to take care of more than one at a time. Isn't that right? And so in the body of Christ, it's the same way. It, it's how we're built. It's, it's how our structure is. It's, it's how we can accommodate what God wants to do. And so, so He only gives us what we can handle. They had a system amongst the Jews where the, the, there was already a, 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 a plan for the, the husband to teach in the home and, and the mom to back them up around the table at the Sabbath. And so when they got the understanding of what all the feast days and, and what all the prophets were talking about, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It was very easy for them in their culture and in their society to, to accommodate growth because they were already built for home and temple, home and temple. And so they were able to keep the 3,000 so harvest plus an addition every single day. They were a daily church so they could have daily results. Many times in our Western civilization, we're a weekly church and that's why we only have weekly results and it leads to a lot of weekly Christians that are awful weekly so we end up taking the same territory over and over and over again. We end up having to pray through and then we kind of lose our momentum and then we hit a midweek somewhere along the line that helps us a little bit until we get to Sunday and then Sunday we take off again and it's kind of like these little jumps and, and we're just about getting there and then we stop again. We just about get there and we stop again. But a daily church is a church that continues. They stay in it and they keep walking in it. And this is the will of God for us that we keep walking in it. Touch somebody and say, continue. After the great explosive outpouring of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost, they got up the next day and they continued. After you have a great revival weekend, guess what you got to do? You got to get up tomorrow morning and you've got to keep on walking with God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So the Bible says they, they were all giving all. And they did this voluntarily. No one told them to do this. This was something that was done out of their uh, sincere belief. They, 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 in sincere love for Jesus. They, they said, we realize this is a fledgling church that's just beginning. This is a new thing. And we're in. We're sold out. We're giving everything we've got for this. 
And so the Bible says they all gave all until Ananias and Sapphira. I don't have a lot of time to talk about them, but Ananias and Sapphira were the first couple that ever held anything back. And Peter said, how has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Notice, he said, Satan filled your heart. These were obviously believers that were a part of that church. No doubt had been baptized and filled with the Spirit. And yet Satan was able to fill their heart. The moment they stopped giving all, they left room for something else. Satan works in darkness, wherever darkness is, including a Christian's heart. And the Bible says that when the Apostle Peter exposed it, God killed Ananias. He asked Sapphira when she came in. And then the Bible says, he said, the same people that carried out your husband are at the door and they're going to bury you next. And she fell down dead. He didn't pronounce her dead. He didn't kill her. He didn't curse her. He just said, this is what's going to happen because this is God's church. It's not my church. And he's, he's bringing judgment to this situation. It was a direct assault against the apostolic authority. And it was also a direct assault against the foundation that had just been built. Because if they had been rewarded at, at, for their deed when they pretended to give all, even though they knew they had not given all, it would have been found out later and it would have discredited the church and discredited the apostles and God said I would rather take out two people and save the entire body than to let that spirit continue to fester and continue to grow in the church and so God subtracted two people so that the church could go to the next dimension the next chapter opens up and says the disciples multiplied God changed their math he subtracted a few so they could move from addition and go into multiplication. And so sometimes there might be an exit, an exodus. There might be a few that no longer are a part of us. But God says, I don't need that spirit among you because I'm ready to take you to the next level. They aren't really committed. They don't really want this. They don't really have the same motive. They don't have the same desire. They don't really want to give all. They don't really want to sell out. They want to still be a part of the world and a part of the church at the same time. But there's a whole lot of other of you that have already paid a price, that have already gotten in the Spirit, that have already determined to go all the way. And because you're moving forward, God says, I'm withdrawing, I'm withdrawing, I'm withdrawing, because now I'm about to multiply you. See, God can add to a church that has hypocrites, but He can't multiply a church that's got hypocrites. Because if He multiplies that church, He also multiplies the hypocrites. He couldn't multiply them while Ananias and Sapphira were a part of it because He would have multiplied their lying spirit. He would have multiplied them in the process. You can add, you can add, you can add. That's why there's a refinement that goes on right before you go to the next level. That's why we go through seasons of testing and trial before we go to the next level. Because God wants to refine us. He wants to purify us so that He can multiply us. Now transitions are always difficult because we have choices we have to make. Either... Either 
they become maintenance-minded or they become ministry-minded. And the church has got to come to a level of maturity where they choose to be ministry-minded so that they can multiply. Most churches go through this cycle. At some point in their history, they come to a place where the structure cannot contain all, cannot, cannot take care of the, the amount of growth that they have. And so they have to make a decision. Either they're going to have to change the structure to accommodate the growth, or else the structure then begins to limit the growth, and the growth goes away. Either your growth is subject to your structure or your structure is subject to your growth. When they multiplied, suddenly 12 men could not take care of all the people. And they started complaining and they started murmuring and they were a little bit frustrated because in the daily giving and ministration of all of the different needs of the people, there was people that were being overlooked. And so the Grecians, which were really Western Jews that, that spoke Greek, that's really what that means, they were upset at the, at the other Hebrews, which were actually the Eastern Jews, which had never really left Israel or were the oldest uh, of, the, of the original Jews and spoke the archaic Hebrew language, they thought, well, they have more status. And so because they have more status, us Western Jews are not, are not appreciated. And so we get overlooked. And they started, they started feeling neglected. And people started missing uh, the, the, some of the things that they were looking for. And needs were not being met. Now, every time a church begins to go to a place of growth, there's always going to be people that get missed somewhere in the process of ministering, and there's needs that get neglected unless we change the structure to accommodate more people doing ministry and less people that are demanding to be ministered to. See, our... our our 20th century mentality that's carried over into the 21st century has been that we have one pastor that takes care of all the needs of the church and sometimes they have an assistant that gets to do a few things on the side and the rest of us just kind of wait for our turn to get ministered to. And that if somebody's in the hospital, well, they haven't been visited. Even if several members of the church go up and check on them, they haven't been, they haven't been visited until the pastor goes and sees them. We had people when I was a pastor, it was, it was amazing to me. You know, they would go into the hospital, they would have a surgery, and they would wonder why nobody called. Well, they didn't tell us that they were having a surgery. Now, God reveals things to me, you know, but every now and then you have to make a phone call and let me know. But there was also this idea that we were supposed to keep track of everything that was going on with every person all the time. And you realize when you get to a certain level of growth, there's only so many people you can keep track of. There's only so many needs that you can keep track of. You realize that, that 80% of the churches in America have, have less than 200 people? The reason is, in a congregation of 150 to 200, there's about 1,200 relationships that are involved there. 
1,200 relationships because it's how this person reacts to this person. It's how this family member connects with this family member. And all of those things at the same time are all the responsibility of that senior pastor and the, and the overseer in the church. So the majority of churches never get past 150 or 200 because there's so much that that one pastor has to take care of. He simply cannot take care of all of those needs. And the structure then begins to limit the growth. The apostles said in the 6th chapter, it is not reason for us to wait on tables. We could wait on tables, but if you really want the church to keep going forward, we're going to have to change our structure and we're going to have to delegate some of the business of the church to some people that you can trust. People that have a good reputation, people of integrity, people that are full of the Holy Ghost, and people that have wisdom. And we're going to release them to step up and start using their gifts in the body of Christ. And so the same people that had the problem had to become a part of the solution. He went to the Grecians. You're the ones that feel neglected. So you choose you out from among you. Seven people that you can submit to and trust that can minister to you. And so there was a new tier of ministry that was created called the diakony in the Greek. And we translated deacon. There were deacons. What it means is it means to serve. That there was a spirit of service that entered the church that said, let me take this off of you so you can do what only you can do. He said, we are going to give ourselves to the Word of God and to prayer because hearing God is the most important thing that we do here as overseers of the church. And the Bible says the people celebrated it. They were excited. And then the Word of God increased and they they kept on multiplying. They changed their math for good. When we get to the ninth chapter, what are they doing? They're still multiplying. The word addition is never used in the book of Acts again after this moment. They made a critical decision. We want to be a church that keeps on growing. So we are going to change the structure to accommodate more and more people that we will allow to take care of the needs of the church. God is raising up a generation right now of people that are going to step into a brand new anointing, that are going to walk in places that we thought only pastors could walk in. And we're going to see young people laying hands on the sick. We're going to see teenagers winning souls. We're going to see people teaching Bible studies. We're going to see all kinds of powerful things taking place because there's a new level of ministry coming into the church because God is taking us to a new level of growth. He is moving you from addition to multiplication. God could double this church in a year. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to prepare yourself for it? Hallelujah. God is raising up people right now that He is grooming and, and He is, and He is perfecting and maturing so that there can be more and more people that can take care of the needs of the church so that you can keep moving forward. Lift your hands to the Lord right now and thank Him for multiplication. Hallelujah. Now, this big jump, it, it, was, it, was pretty, it was pretty intense. I mean, there was, there was no little uh, ruckus 
when they were making this jump. When people are making transitions, there's always a lot of vulnerability. When people are changing structures, that means things aren't going to be the way they always were. And we like things to be the way they always were. I talked to a pastor in Dallas who incidentally baptizes in Jesus' name and, and uh, believes that every believer needs to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He's not in our fellowship, but he, is, he, is, uh, he does believe in the new birth. And I, I wanted to see, I wanted to hear his story. I got invited to be a part of a luncheon with him. And he started in Arlington, Texas uh, seven or eight years ago with two families. And now he has around 6,000, 7,000 people. And um, I, I wanted to hear his story. And he began to talk about uh, the rapid growth and kind of how he came up with this and uh, his, his model for, for growth. And he just read the book of Acts. And then he read the words of Jesus that said, Upon this rock I'll build my church. And he said, Jesus, what kind of church are you going to build here? It's not my church, it's your church. So let me, look at your, uh, let me look at your patterning. And he found seven pillars from the book of Acts that he used as, as, his, as his key pillars for establishing his church. At six months, they had about 30 people, and they took them to uh, Texas Rangers Stadium for 30 days, and they prayed around the stadium at 6 o'clock in the morning for an hour, and they asked God to give them a church that would fill that stadium with 30 people. And, and that's the kind of vision that the man had. It was a really amazing story. And so they grew about 1,000 people a year for six or seven straight years. They've, they've done that. They average around 200 guests every Sunday service. Amazing. I watched them get baptized in, in the service. It was just, it was really amazing. I went to one of their, one of their early morning services. That be, it was before our service uh, when I was home on a Sunday. And, and um so I, I wanted to just kind of take it all in. It was really amazing. But I asked him this question. I said, what's your biggest frustration? He said, my biggest frustration is that I don't have leaders that can keep up with the growth. He said, wherever they plugged in, that's where they want the church to stay. And as the church keeps growing, then they start dropping out because it's not in the same, it's not in the same uh, uh, place that it was when they started serving. They were in a junior high school for like three or four years where they would have to set up the platform and tear it down every single week until they grew to be about 2,000 people. That's the only building they had. Had to put up the bleachers, had to, I mean, the, the stands for the choir. They had to set up the drums and tear it down every single week. And then God gave them this building. It was an old Johnson & Johnson building, 425,000 square feet. I mean, it's just massive. And by the way, they found uh, uh, Burnett Shell underneath, and now they're pumping out four wells of, of, of natural gas for the next 10 years. And it's going to pay for everything for... It's like 2 to $10 million per well per year for the next 20 years. So you think God knows how to finance His church. He knows how to finance it. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'm hearing all this. I'm just, I'm just amazed. I'm listening to Him. And I said, okay, so what's your frustration? He said, well, I got people that started serving in the school. And when we went to the new building, they didn't want to serve anymore. They, they liked uh, building everything up and turning everything down every week. And I'm like, you went from a junior high school to a 425,000 square foot building worth $25 million and they'd rather be in the school because that's where they plugged in and they didn't like the change. 
And I thought to myself, even these big thriving churches have the same problem, have the same issue. We have to put it in our minds that we're going to keep on walking with God. We're going to keep on adjusting ourselves. Whatever it takes to keep on growing and to keep fulfilling our mission and doing the will of God, we're, we're going to do. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes we don't like it. But you know what? That's good for us. It makes us grow personally too. It makes us grow spiritually. It teaches us how to be humble because maybe we're not the ones that are getting catered to. Maybe all the years that somebody ministered to us, maybe we now need to take all that knowledge and all that virtue and turn around instead of being a part of the problem and complaining. Why don't you get out there and start serving? And why don't you get out there and start helping some people? What we find is that your passion is your permission. Everyone say, my passion is my permission. People are passionate about things, especially when it pertains to them. I had a man one time that I didn't shake his hand coming into the service. I didn't see it. There was several people coming into the service, and I didn't realize his hand was out. I was walking in. I was a little bit focused, you know, on just the service starting and me going up to the platform and where do I need to be, and I was kind of looking around, and I didn't see his hand out. I mean, the next, uh, at the end of the service, he comes to me. If a brother's offended you, according to Matthew chapter 18, he needs to confront that man, and I'm here to confront you about not shaking my hand. I said, oh, I am so sorry, and I I said, I mean, he's, he's crying over this. I mean, He's down on the platform with me. We're sitting, we're between the chairs praying, oh God, please not. I'm asking the man, forgive me. I didn't mean to overlook you or make you feel that you weren't important. The next day, he writes a thesis on koinonia, goes into the Greek about the right hand of fellowship and how this is important according to the scriptures and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, I'm like, wow, this guy is really passionate about shaking hands. He's presenting me with a need. He got overlooked. He got neglected, okay? Now, really, what God was doing was trying to birth a ministry in him. He was trying to do something in him to help him to see the importance of making people feel welcome. And and he was trying to teach him a lesson. Really, God was trying to create a solution by revealing to him a problem. You know what? If you've got that much passion about shaking hands, why don't you be the first one at the door shaking other people's hands? Why don't you be the one that's standing there making sure nobody gets messed? If you've got that much passion, that's your ministry. That's your permission. Go out and do it. Well, somebody needs to take care of these kids. You know, these kids are in the service and they're disrupting folks. There's your ministry. Why don't you start a children's ministry? Well, you know what? This church needs to be cleaned up. There's stuff. Oh, my goodness. There's a, here's a tissue right here on the front row. Somebody needs to clean. There's your ministry. Why don't you, since you're so passionate about it, why don't you become a part of the solution instead of being a part of the problem? There's all kinds of needs everywhere you look. And there's some of those needs that get a hold of you. And you know what God says? You need to change your mindset. Instead of saying, somebody needs to do this, you need to say, I'm going to be the one that's going to step up and I'm going to help, Pastor, because I know you can't do it all. And there's so many people here that need to help. It's the least I can do to get in and start serving. And a spirit of service, when it gets a hold of a people, it'll revolutionize an entire community. Hallelujah. 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 
by the time the Apostle Paul was brought into the church and all of the issues that came with the Apostle Paul and the way that he boldly preached in the streets and the Christians didn't know what to think about him and the Jews certainly didn't know what to think about him. Finally, the Bible says they escorted him back to Tarsus. And when he went back to Tarsus, the Bible says then the churches had rest. There was, there was a spirit of rest that came over them. There was a sense that it's going to be okay. God's with us. He's going to help us. Whatever we go through, He's going to stand by our side. I love how Jesus Himself meets, meets Saul on the road to Damascus. The Bible says, while He was breathing out threatenings, He was still muttering under His breath, These Christians, I'm going to take them out. I'm going to stop them right now. Got these letters. I'm going to can't get to Damascus fast enough. And a light knocks him down and says, Enough! Why do you persecute me? He didn't say, Why are you persecuting the church? He said, Why are you persecuting me? What Jesus was saying is, When you touch my people, it's the same as if you touched me. And you're not going to get away with that forever without me showing up and having something to say about it. And he looks at him and says, Who are you, Lord? I know that you are the deity, but I don't even know that I know you. And he said, I am Jesus. Wow. And that monotheistic Pharisee right there realized that Jesus was his Jehovah God. And he was mightily delivered. Changed, transformed, and not long after was baptized in the name of Jesus and filled with the Holy Ghost. When he comes back now, he's preaching and declaring it, and they don't know if it's a trap or if he's for real. And when, when they take him off to, to, to Tarsus to try to regroup and refocus his life, the church has rest. And they say, thank you, God. You brought us through this. Now the Bible says they're in a different mode. The Bible says in the state of rest, they multiplied. First, when they started multiplying... It was, it was rugged to make that transition. It was difficult for them to move into that place. But now, now in a position of rest, by operating and living in the rest of God, they were still multiplying. In other words, once you make this change and shift, and once you learn how to function in this way, you step into another dimension of abundance. You see... When you're in addition mode, every time there's more people, it puts more stress on the structure. It puts, it, it puts more stress. Just if you're a parent and you have four kids and you have another one on the way, you're thinking that's one more mouth to feed. Understand? It, it's, it's this much more we have to accommodate. We have to expand the house, get another bed. We've got to do something. We gotta, it, it puts a little bit more pressure on the structure, less of you to go around. Less money to go around. Less food to go around. Okay? Because there's only the same amount of parents. There's just two parents. Okay? But when you're in a church environment where God starts bringing in new people, there's more than just one leader now that starts discipling and mentoring and training and developing people. And when you start multiplying in ministry, what happens is you start creating a pool of people that are stepping into leadership development and they're constantly moving people from coming into the church and, and receiving an experience to now being trained and developed to use their gift and you have 
more and more people that are being used in their gifts and more and more people that are ministering, more and more people that are teaching Bible studies, more and more people that have the ability to disciple. And then after a while, you say, yeah, we could have a 100-soul revival easily. We could have a 200-soul revival easily. Not only because we have that many more people teaching Bible studies, but we have that many more people that were there to help take care of these people and disciple these people and grow this and grow the church until you get into a mode where you expect it you 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 anticipate it you are you are constantly thinking about this and the entire structure keeps just growing and growing and growing and the entire body keeps growing and growing until even in a state of rest you're still multiplying you see rest is a different concept rest does not sleep okay when you see rest in the bible it's not sleep in the book of Hebrews 4, he said, There remaineth a rest for the people of God. Now, he was talking about Joshua. And he was talking about that original tribe, the original uh, group of people that came out of Egypt. That they missed out on Canaan land. And he said, They missed out on the rest. Okay? They didn't get the rest of what God wanted to do for them because they didn't enter into God's rest. Because they were not in a position of rest, they didn't discover all the rest. And so they had this concept that they had just enough. We're in a wilderness, and it's just enough to get by. Just enough daily bread, just enough daily quail, just enough water out of the rock, just enough clothes. It was all about survival. It was how long can these shoes last? How long can this coat last? How long can we stay alive in this wilderness? And because they thought that this was permanent, they began to form an opinion about God that this is all of the provision that He was going to give them. Are you listening to me right now? People can get into an idea that when God sets you into a wilderness, that this is somehow God saying, this is all you get. And we get in a holding pattern because we think there's really not going to be any more resources than what He's already given to us. And they left out the promised land out of the equation and they never, dis- they never discovered the rest of their inheritance. And they never learned then how to get into a state of spiritual rest. And a lot of people are in a training ground called a wilderness, a transition place called a wilderness, and they never get past the wilderness. It becomes their permanent residence, and they have this idea that God cannot give them any more than what they have, and so they miss out on the abundance that God has available to them. And so the Bible says it took the next generation to push past that barrier and to step into the promised land. And the Bible says in the book of Hebrews... That was a type of the New Testament church that said there is somebody that's going to have the rest of God. Somebody is going to fulfill the promise. Somebody is going to get out of the wilderness. And so what the, what the writer of Hebrews said, he said, let's fear lest any of us miss out on the promises of God. I don't want to fall short, he said, of the promise of God. I don't want to live beneath the possibility or beneath my potential. And what I'm telling somebody here tonight... 
You might have been in a wilderness for a while, but God does not want you to stay in that wilderness. He does not want you to stay in that barely get by mentality. He's got a whole lot more for you. He wants you to get out of your holding pattern and get into the full measure of the promise of God. He does not want you to live beneath your divine privilege. There is more for you. Touch your neighbor and say, there's a whole lot more for you. Joshua was hardly sleeping when he was crossing Jordan. He was hardly sleeping or lethargic when he was, uh, he was standing at, on the outskirts of Jericho. But he functioned in an entirely different way than they did in the wilderness. The wilderness mentality was longevity. They celebrated how long they survived. And when you have people that have not yet discovered the rest or learned how to live in the rest of God, it's all been how long can I hold on? How long can I stay? And their testimonies go like this. I've been in the church for 40 years. I just want you to know I've survived it and made it through. Y'all just pray for me that I make it till the rapture. Those are the same people that wrote the song, Hold the Fort for I Am Coming. I heard somebody one time singing on a street corner, Build me a cabin up in glory. Build me a cabin up in glory. My Lord, I don't want a cabin. God, I want the full measure of what heaven is for me. I don't want just some little small little side side room somewhere. <laughs> I don't know exactly what we're going to live in. The Bible talks about mansions. He could be talking about the Holy Ghost now or he could be talking about uh, mansions in heaven. But I'm sure it's not a little cabin somewhere on some little corner of somebody else's inheritance. Folks, I want everything that God has for me. Are you hearing me? There's got to be something inside of you that says, I wasn't made for the wilderness. God did not build me for the wilderness. He built me for the promised land. He built me to, to conquer the nations. He built me to take over cities, to conquer giants. And when Joshua got into that dimension, the Bible calls it, in Hebrews it calls it, the rest of God. And what he found out was the rest of God was there. God said, now this is how easy it's going to be. You just march around the walls once a day. Keep your mouth shut. After seven days, march around seven times. At the end, shout, I'll take care of the rest. And the walls fall, fall down flat. Well, okay, one city down, next. Well, now what do we do? It wasn't how many soldiers they had. It wasn't their military strategies. It was not how strong their swords were or how, how accurate their arrows were. It was the fact that they were functioning in a dimension of the abundance of God. Okay, God, how do we take the city? This is how you take the city. He gave them the plan, and the supernatural was so powerful, it just knocked the walls down flat. Folks, I'm going to tell you something. There is a dimension in God that we don't have to work nearly as hard, and we get twice as much results because we are stopped 
doing it ourselves and we are relying totally upon the Spirit. This is where God wants us to go. He wants to push us out of our infancy and move us into the realm of spiritual maturity so that He can trust us with the next level. Multiplication. Quantum leaps. Barriers breaking. Moving from just enough to more than enough. Moving from a scarcity, barely get by mentality. Holding pattern. Just trying to survive. Longevity. To a fruitfulness and excitement and anticipation of what God has in store for us next. Stop and lift your hands to the Lord right now and say, I'm inviting God's abundance into my life right now. The Bible says, again, in the book of Hebrews, let us therefore labor to enter into that rest. Interesting terminology. Labor to enter into rest. And then it says, he that is in the rest of God has ceased from his own labor, as God ceased from his. So, I'm laboring... To enter into his rest. If I'm ceasing from my own works, then it's not work that he's talking about when he says labor. Could it be travail? Could it be the labor of a woman giving birth? Could it be Paul's words to the Galatian church, my little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you? I have to give birth to this, he says. It's something you have to labor into. It's, it's, it's something that only comes through travail. I know that every time that I've ever travailed, it was, it was extremely intense. But when I was done, something broke in my life and something was born into my life. I remember at the age of I was 19 years old, I was in New Orleans doing some of my initial training. I was in an apprenticeship there with Brother Cupid. And I was there three different times over a period of six months. I ended up being there about three months out of six. And I worked with the youth group for a while. And, and uh, during one of those uh, six-week periods that I was there in New Orleans, we went to Because of the Times. And it was the first time I'd ever been to Because of the Times. And God had been dealing with me about developing the love of God in my life. That, that was the missing coin. There was nine coins that the woman had, but she swept the house to find the one lost coin. And, and he was saying that, that it's not complete 
if you don't have love. You can have the nine gifts of the Spirit, but if you don't have love, it doesn't really mean anything. And that's the reason why between the 12th chapter, which defines spiritual gifts, and the 14th chapter, which brings practical application of the gifts, there's the love chapter in chapter 13. Right in the middle of the operation of the gifts of the Spirit is the love of God. And then Galatians 5, 6 says, Faith which works by love. It is love that... That is the motive. It's the pure motive that makes faith operate correctly. And so I was really praying about this and studying this. And then Sister Vesta Mangan preached a message called Loving the Way Jesus Loves. And I mean, it was so profound and it was so convicting and it was so powerful. I sat there in the pew and, and, I, and I drank it in and it just kept, it just kept hitting me and hitting me and hitting me until finally I was beyond where I could just go and pray a simple prayer. I was beyond just going up there and shedding a tear. I was in this place where I was trembling and shaking and groaning in myself because I knew I needed to get there, but I didn't know how to get there. And I said, God, i got to go up to the front, but I'm afraid to go up. I don't want people to think I'm trying to, uh, you know people to look at me or see me or I just but I need to go pray and it wasn't quite time for the time to pray yet and all of a sudden a hand hit my back like this just hit my back and I later found out I asked somebody I said was this who was sitting there behind me and somebody said look the row the whole row behind you was empty there was nobody there and I realized it was the hand of God saying get up there son and go do this and when that hand hit me, I just jumped. I went forward. And I, when, I hit the, when I hit the carpet, I hit my face. My face went down into that carpet. And I started travailing. Ah! It was so I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even speak words. And it, and it, was, it was more and more intense. I, let, I broke blood vessels all in, the, in my cheeks and in my eyes because it was so intense. But I laid on that floor and I groaned and I travailed while God stripped me of me. While God took things out of me and put stuff in me and after about a half hour of groaning and laying on that floor I finally died I finally broke and the tears were streaming down and when I got up I was different than how I came in there and I'm telling you there are times in the spirit when that's the only way you go to the next level is that God puts something on you and you say I'm not giving up I am not stopping until Paul said, I'm travailing in birth again until. He said, there is something that is pressing me in the Spirit, saying the church in Galatia, he said, you can't go back. You've got to go on. You began in the Spirit. You can't go back to the works of the law. You started off right, but now you're getting in a holding pattern. You've got to get out of this wilderness, and you've got to get to the next stage. You've got to stay in the Spirit, and you've got to keep hearing God, and I'm travailing until Christ is formed in you, until it's more than just a feeling. No, it's more than just a service. It's more than just a ritual. It's more than just you lifting your hands or, or saying a few prayers. But, but Christ is now manifest on the inside of you until He is formed in you. The word Christ is the, in the Greek the word to rub or to smear with oil. It means that you're covered in the oil. It's not just a little dab on your head, but it's on everything. And what He is saying is, I'm praying 
spring that you're rubbing with, the, that the oil is all over you, that you're anointed in every part of your life. The second thing that Christ means, it means to supply what is needed. And He is saying that when Christ is formed in you, it's no longer you are the person that has the need. You are now the person that is supplying the need that God puts a ministry inside of you where you are productive and you are pouring out. And every believer goes through a time in their life when they say, God, I'm tired of being in this cycle where I always have to have somebody pray me out of it. Or I always have to have somebody else to get me through this. God, I'm tired of going through this same wilderness over and over and over again. I'm ready to find the rest. I'm ready to get out of this struggle. I'm ready to move into the next level. God, I'm ready for us to go from addition to multiplication. But I've got to lay some things down and I've got to move into something else. And it's travail. It's, ah, it's groanings which cannot be uttered. It's all those barren places. It's all those things in you that are not producing that the Spirit knows about. And He says, on your face. Ah. Ah. When it's time for that baby to come, it's going to come. Whether you're ready for it or not, it's coming. I was just with some of my friends in Florida, and his wife... His wife was on the way to deliver the baby, and it started coming, and at 70 miles an hour in the back of the car while they were driving, the husband had to get in the back while somebody else was driving, and she said, it's coming now, and that baby was born going 70 miles an hour in the back of the car trying to get to the birthing room, because when that baby was ready to come, it's ready to come, and there's nothing else that's on your mind except that one thing. I gotta, I gotta push this out. I gotta, I've gotta. This has got to happen. And when God gets you to that critical point, you're ready to pass over. You're ready. You're ready to go there. There's a yearning. There's a desire. There's a groaning in yourself. I can't live this way anymore. I want more than this. God, you didn't call me for a wilderness. Brother Robertson, God's been talking to me about stuff I don't know what to do with. Three or four years ago, God told me about the five key cities for America's turnaround. Chicago, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Columbus, and Dallas. All five of these cities are key battleground cities that when revival takes place in each of these cities... It's going to turn the heart. He said it's going to revive the heart of America. God, I don't know how to create a city movement. I don't know how to get churches and people and believers to get on board. I don't know how to do this. But God, I see it. It needs to happen. When I was in a prayer last year, I would, I, every year I asked the Lord for a word for the, for the upcoming year. It usually comes... December. Most of the time it comes in December. Uh, sometimes it comes a little earlier. This year I was in August and God speaks to me and he says, I don't want you to ask me for a year. I want you to ask me for a decade. 
And I said, okay. And I started praying about a decade. What's the next decade? From 2010 to 2020. What is it going to be like? And God started speaking to me in these big chunks. I would get these big chunks where I would see several years into the future. And, and when, I went to, uh, when I went to Brazil in November, I was, I was standing there after that first day when that angel touched me on that first day. And God began to speak to me and talk to me for about 20 minutes uh, after just arrived. I hadn't even slept yet it's after being up most of the night and traveling there. And God started talking to me about the next 10 years, how he wanted to reach the alpha cities of the world. And I've been studying what alpha cities were. These are the most influential cities that are in the world today. There's only two alpha plus pluses, and that's London and New York. There's alpha plus ratings, and there's only about 10 or 12 cities that meet that criteria. Then there's alpha and then alpha minus. It ends up being about 30 different cities around the world, which are called alpha cities or world cities, that if something happens there, it affects the the entire region. And God says, I'm ready to reach the alpha cities of the world. God, how do we even think about this? How do we even know how to approach? approach this, but I realize that the church is at a critical point in his existence right now where we're, we're, we've been grappling with issues that are, that are so, so far beneath what our impact could be and what God really wants us to be doing. We've been going around the same bush, walking around the same rocks, and what God was trying to do was he was saying, there's a whole lot more outside of this little wilderness that you've been in that I want to give you. There's There's whole cities that I want you to possess. And the church needs to go into a different mentality where we believe we can do this. But Satan is trying to get us so distracted in our daily lives that we don't even know if we're going to have food on the table next week, much less pray for a neighboring city or pray for, our, for a neighboring community or believe that God could use our church to make a difference and we can get so bogged down with just the little details of life. And I feel like God is saying, McCormick's Creek, you've always been a prophetic church. You've always touched the future. You've always sought to be apostolic. There's something that's coming on you. There's a maturity that God is wanting to put on you that you shake off just living for yourself, that you shake off just thinking about your own little needs, and you tap into something that's bigger and greater than yourself. And in that process, there is a yearning and a growing in, and a groaning in you that says, God, I've got to have more. I don't want to live the rest of my life like this. Somebody's going to reach these cities, I'm telling you. Somebody is going to impact these cities. Somebody is going to affect them. Maybe God postures you just right here in a critical place where you could be a dynamic, powerful voice in prayer and in training and in preparation where you could say, we can affect the heartland of America. A revival that happens right here in a sleepy little city called Spencer. God could do something in McCormick's Creek that would have an impact on around the world. We've got to enter into the rest. Let me translate this now, okay? We're done. 
Let me translate this now. Entering into the rest means that the same things that used to drain us before don't drain us anymore. My brother-in-law is a medical doctor. There's a new field that's opening up now for stress-related illnesses because the amount of people that are overstressed in America is so high that it's creating an epidemic of three different categories of diseases. And so they're finding out that we don't just treat the heart disease, we don't just treat the diabetes, we don't just treat the cancer, we have to find out the causes of all these. And it goes back into adrenal uh, fatigue, low cortisol levels, and problems in the hormones. And all of this is directly tied into stress. Folks, the stress is not going away. But how we deal with it has got to change. The Bible says the Antichrist will wear out the saints of the Most High. He's going to seek to wear out the saints. If I can't control you, and if I can't stop you, then what I'm going to try to do is create circumstances that are going to wear you out. And so what you and I have got to do is we have to have a different response to the same kind of problems. That we don't have the same kind of reaction that we used to have. We don't allow circumstances to stress us out or burn us out anymore. We start learning to just function in the rest of God. We start just trusting Him with the details. We used to fret and worry and concern. How is this going to happen? How are we going to do this? And somehow it works out. And somehow God takes care of the need. And if we would just stop and say, you know what, Lord? You know what you're doing here. I'm going to trust you with this. And I'm going to just keep moving in the right direction. I'm going to just keep on walking with you. That's how we apply it. Stop and lift your hands to the Lord right now. Amen. I want you to say it right now. Say, I refuse to worry. Say, I am not going to live in fear. Not for one more moment. God has not given me the spirit of fear. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. In Jesus' name. Anxiety, worry, and fear. I command you to go right now. In Jesus' name, I invite the rest of God into my life right now. Lift your hands again to the Lord and give Him praise.
our answer is trust. Everybody say trust. That's our answer. Trust. If we want to live in the rest of God, we have to trust. For the church to let the, the apostles go to the next level, they had to trust. And the apostles also had to trust the deacons. There had to be a mutual respect built on trust. For us to go to the next level with God, guess what? We have to trust Him in ways we haven't trusted Him before. I got down to pray the other day. God, I've got a son coming in December. There's no revivals in December. And they cover us for our major medical, but we couldn't get any maternity coverage at all. And so it's a C-section planned. That's how they do it in Texas. If you've had one, you have to have it the second time. So that's out-of-pocket expense, something like 30000 something like that, dollars. God, I've been, I've been bringing this to you. What am I supposed to do about this? I trust you, God. I worship you, God. But I was worried. It's was concerned. It really started bothering me. I got down to pray for somebody else, and God spoke to me and said, I told you I got this. I'm going to take care of the birth of your child. Now you focus on ministering to somebody else. Okay. I got this. That was his words. I got this. I told you I got this. And I realized, you know what? I've just got to stay in the rest of God. I've just got to flow in the trust. He's going to take care of us. I don't know how He's going to do it. I just know He's going to do it. And I've just got to flow in the Spirit and let Him take care of the details. I'm going to stop stressing out over something that I can't change and I can't control anyway. And I'm telling some people here tonight, you got to stop stressing out over things that you can't control, over things that you don't know the answers to. And you just have to walk with Him. What's the future going to be like here, Bishop? I tell you, it's going to be all right. God's going to take care of whatever transitions that happen in the future. God's going to watch over the future of this church just like He's watched over you for the last 26 years that this man has been your bishop. You've got to let the Holy Ghost do what the Holy Ghost wants to do. So there's going to be different people ministering. But you know what? God knows that your bishop is going to be the bishop as long as he needs to be the bishop. So you need to stop worrying about it and just flow with what God is doing. You're worried about your finances. You survived and you got here, didn't you? You got enough food on your table now, don't you? You're not living under a, under a bridge somewhere now, are you? He didn't leave you then. He hasn't, he hasn't forsaken you now. He's not gonna, he's not gonna forget about you tomorrow. You need to trust him and walk with him right now. You know what God is saying? I got this. Now you focus on taking care of somebody else. Look at your neighbor and say, God's got it. Now just relax in it. Just relax in God. Stand to your feet all over this building.
what we're going to do right now I want you to take everything that's bothering you everything that's on your mind everything you've been anxious about everything you've been nervous about everything you didn't know what to do about every problem that you couldn't fix that you couldn't solve by yourself you know what I want you to do I want you to give it to God right now I want you to hold out your hands like this, symbolically. Hold your hands out like this. And instead of asking Him to do it, I want you to start thanking Him. Thank you, Lord. You're going to take care of whatever it is. Let's pray it right now together. Father, we're coming to You in the name of Jesus. We're getting out of this holding pattern. We're getting out of this place of barely getting by. Right now, Lord, in the name of Jesus, we're tired of just enough. But Lord, you've given us a great promise for a great future. And if you promised us all those great things for our tomorrows, then you know all the details of our today. You know all of our history that got us to where we are right now. And what we need is a greater revelation of you. What we need is to discover all the rest of you. All of your wisdom and abundance and all of your resources and all the things that you know how to take care of that we don't know one, nothing about. God, right now, I trust you. Some of you in this place need to trust God with your marriage and stop being anxious. Some of you young people stop needing to be anxious about whether you're going to get married or not or where he is or where she is. And just say, God, what do you want me to do right now? How can I serve you right now? Some of you parents need to stop stressing out over your kids and just start saying, God, I'm putting my kids in your hands right now. And I'm trusting you, Lord, that you're going to give me the wisdom and the resources. Some of you people need to stop worrying about your finances and worrying about your job and worrying about your house and your bills and how am I going to pay this and how am I going to... And you need to get out of your holding pattern tonight and something needs to change in you where you say, God, I'm not going to live this way the rest of my life. I'm going to break through this barrier. I'm going to labor to enter into that rest. If I've got to travail until if i have to pray until i will until this doesn't control me anymore but i trust you god i trust you god lift your hands to the lord right now and lift it up to him and i want you to tell him again If you're here tonight and you feel something inside of you that's desperate, say, God, I'm desperate.
Rachel said, give me children lest I die. There was desperation. Jacob said, I, I got a hold of this angel and I'm not letting go until you bless me. There was some desperation that was there. Paul said, church, I'm not going to stop praying until Christ is formed in you. I, I can't. It, it's, it's something It's pressing on me. Say, God, I've got to go to the next level. I can't stay here anymore. I can't live like this anymore. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Give it all to Him. Give it all to Him. I can't do this, Lord. I can't carry this anymore. I can't sustain this wilderness anymore. I wasn't called for a wilderness. I'm not designed for a wilderness. Thank you, Jesus.